Welcome to this episode of Beads Podcast, a weekly reflection on church history with Dr. Michael A.G. Haken. Dr. Haken serves as the chair and professor of church history at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he is on the core faculty of Heritage Theological Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario. He's also a fellow of the Royal Historical Society in recognition of his contributions to historical scholarship. Join us now as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people. Dr. Haken, when it comes to apologetics, is this something that is commanded in the scriptures? Yes, I think it is. Um, in 1 Peter 3, it's a passage that people often go to when they want to argue for the necessity of doing apologetics. Uh, Peter says, In your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, uh, 1 Peter 3.15, ready at any time to give a defense. Uh, the, the Greek word there is apologia. To anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. Um, and I, I think the, the argument that uh, apologetics is understood to be a task of the church uh, is encompassed in, in this uh, particular passage. Um, obviously, the word apologia, the Greek word, doesn't mean what the word uh, we derive from it, which is apology. Um, it's something much more robust and um, more substantial than that particular word, which we get from the Greek word. Um, it's, uh, it's, a, it's not apologizing for the faith, but it's giving a defense of the faith, uh, giving reasons why you believe, etc., and uh, certainly in the New Testament, you find the Apostle Paul um, on a numerous occasions in the book of Acts. Uh, one thinks of um, Acts 17, where he's in Athens, uh, giving a defense of the faith. And um, he talks about uh, providence as evidence of God's, of God's involvement in the world. And then uh, he mentions the resurrection, uh, which at that point, the Epicureans and the Stoics begin to laugh because they don't believe in the feasibility or possibility of resurrection. But you nonetheless find Paul giving a defense of the faith, giving reasons why he believes it's reasonable to believe. Um, of course, the Apostle Paul believes that, uh, as he would say in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3, that uh, it is only by the Holy Spirit that a person can confess Christ as Lord, uh, the Spirit is necessary for genuine saving faith. But that doesn't stop him from presenting reasons. And um, I tend to think that uh, Francis Schaeffer in the 20th century had it right when he insisted that honest, an honest questions deserve honest answers. And we have, to give, we have to give reasons why we believe as Christians and can't simply affirm, well, you know, there's no way you can understand anything I'm going to say to you because um, the Holy Spirit has to work in your heart, open your eyes, give you faith, uh, give you new affections, draw you to Christ. Uh, otherwise, you'll, you'll, what I'm going to say to you will sound like gobbledygook. Um, and I think that the, the, the New Testament uh, assumes that there is such a thing as common grace, that men and women have minds, and as such, they can listen to reasons given for the Christian faith, and that the Holy Spirit uh, uses those, those, those discussions 
um, to compel in a loving and gentle manner uh, faith uh, on the part of the one hearing them. So I do think, yeah, I do think apologetics is something that the church is commanded to do um, in every generation. And of course, uh, the ground shifts. Um, the sort of apologetics that uh, was being done in the second century is not the sort of apologetics that's being done um, five, six hundred years later, uh, nor is it the same sort of apologetics that's being done in the in the 18th century, nor, this, you know, again, the same today. But apologetics is an ongoing task of the church. And uh, we are thankful for God raising up individuals um, to do this uh, task. Um, in the period right after the New Testament, in some ways, just a martyr, although you do have the Apostle Paul uh, doing apologetics, I think, in the book of Acts, it's just a martyr who kind of creates the genre. And um, I'm personally convinced by the argument of Sarah Parvis, um, who a number of years ago argued that the two apologies of just a martyr, the first apology and the second apology, actually are wrongly named. And she argues that the second apology should come, was probably written first, and then the first apology. The first apology is the much longer one. It's an extensive discussion of Christian belief and Christian practice. Whereas the second apology is a very, very brief narrative that begins with a, just a fascinating story, backstory. Um, it would appear that a very wealthy Roman woman um, who, with her husband, had been involved in all kinds of sexual immorality, um, having sex with uh, various other people, in, mostly slaves in her household, going possibly on sex junkets to other parts of the Roman Empire, was converted, genuinely converted, and she no longer felt uh, a desire, and rightly so, to do these things. And um, her husband was furious at her. And when he discovered that she was a Christian, denounced her to the Roman authorities. And uh, because she was very wealthy, one of, the, one of the perks that a Roman upper class person had was that they could um, delay a trial that might, might lead to capital punishment uh, while they got their house in order. And she was able to do this. And uh, the time time dragged on and he was on the husband was unable to take her to, to court and so what he did was he had her pastor a man named Ptolemaeus arrested and he was executed and um, the woman had actually tried to divorce her husband but uh, Christians had encouraged her to stay with him um, until finally she she felt she she really had had enough and at that point he he actually denounced her and um, um, she goes, she comes to Justin and asks him, uh, in essence, to plead her case. And that's the way the, the, the book starts. And it becomes a mini defense of the Christian faith. Christian faith is not unreasonable. It produces moral behavior and, and uh, behavior that any ruler of the empire would want to see in his subjects. And um, uh, Sarah Parvis argues that just a martyr kind of saw the value of this sort of defense of the faith, and it led to to um, just a martyr's uh, second work, which is actually the first apology, which is a much more extensive uh, discussion. But that introduces a whole that kind of produces a flood 
of apologetic works in the second and third centuries. So you have uh, Tertullian writing an apology. You have Theophilus of Antioch, three-volume work uh, to a man named Autolycus. You've got Athenagoras um, uh, writing a plea for the Christians. You've got the Letus Diagninus. You've got Minucius Felix uh, writing apology. And probably the probably the classic apology of this period is by Origen in his Against Celsus. And um, this past weekend, I've been uh, reading about some of the attacks on Origen in the 4th and 5th century by people who accused him of being a heretic. And uh, they really stain his name, but he's a remarkable theologian, and his Against Celsus is just a, just a brilliant page-by-page uh, -page response to a pretty brutal attack on Christianity by a Roman writer named Celsus. And um, Origen basically takes it apart. We actually don't have Celsus's book. Uh, what we have is Origen's response to Celsus. And um, you can put together the book on the basis of the fact that Origen quotes large sections of it, and then he refutes them. And so Apologetics is born. And um, as you well know, it's been a stock in trade of certain individuals in the church uh, down through down through the centuries. Uh, so you said that uh, throughout history, so apologetics looks different depending on the era that uh, the Christians are in. Could you comment maybe what how the, what those differences look like throughout history? Yeah. Um, so in, in the early years, um, there is an attempt to show the Roman emperors that Christianity is not a subversive religion. There are charges leveled against Christianity, the main ones being that Christianity uh, commits you up to atheism, that namely disbelief in the divine completely, which is not true, obviously. Um, it was atheism with regard to the, 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 the Roman and uh, Greek and Roman gods. So a recent book uh, was entitled um, The Destroyer of the Gods, which was a discussion of the way in which Christianity undermined Greco-Roman paganism. But that was a charge, that Christianity was an atheistic religion. Charges were made that it was cannibalistic, uh, that it pr promoted sexual immorality. So those are the sort of things that had to be responded to at that time. Um, 500 years later, with uh, Islam appearing out of the Saudi Peninsula, um, you have a very different kind of response that has to now be made. Um, you now have to have defenses of the Trinity. Uh, you have to have defenses of the preservation of the Bible, that it's not being corrupted, as Muslim scholars would argue. Uh, you have to have defenses of the deity of Christ and the resurrection. And uh, we f you can find these in a number of writers. One that I've been reading lately is the Syriac uh, Christian author in Baghdad, Timothy of Baghdad, um, who lived in the late 700s, was active in the late 700s, died around 823. And uh, he has some uh, a fabulous um, book in which he engages with a leading Muslim um, ruler named the Mahdi in, um, in, um, in um, uh, Baghdad. And he later wrote the whole thing down. And, um, and then again, you jump forward, you, say, you know, jump forward maybe a, a, a thousand years, uh, and you have different issues going on in the Enlightenment in the 1700s. Uh, you now have the emphasis on the primacy of human reason. And um, authors like 
um, Andrew Fuller has to respond to somebody like Thomas Paine in his Age of Reason, or Jonathan Edwards. Uh, Jonathan Edwards really is a very creative apologist um, who is able to make use of Enlightenment thought and turn it around against those who would use it to attack Christianity. And then, you know, in the 20th century, you have people like C.S. Lewis, who is uh, making the point that faith is not an unreasonable um, step, uh, that faith has its reasons, the reasons of the heart, as Pascal talked about them. Um, in more recent days, you've got the rise of postmodernity. Um, at least some of us think that there is such a thing as postmodernity. For others, it's kind of the, the tail end of modernity. It's basically, uh, the emphasis on the primacy of human reason run to, to ridiculous lengths. I think it, I think it's a response to, to rationalism and the emphasis that there is no absolute truth. Uh, there's no such thing as truth at all. There's my truth, your truth. And so how do you respond to that? Um, the responses that were made at the time of the at the time of the 18th century are no longer adequate, and there has to be uh, new ways of responding to those sort of charges. And I think it's critical for the church to to know her culture. Um, there are there are Christian communities who tend to partly because of the threat of the surrounding world and the the fearsomeness I think intellectually of the task of engaging one's culture, they tend to retreat into the safety of the past. And um, this can have very dangerous consequences. And one illustration that I've really never forgotten once I had studied it was the, um, the ministry of a very remarkable French Christian named Antoine Cour, C-O-U-R-T, who was born in the late 1600s at a period when the French Calvinist churches were under very, very heavy attack by the French state. And in fact, in 1685, the French state removed any legal protection for those Calvinist churches and ruled that there was no need for legal protection because there were no longer anybody who wasn't a Catholic in France. And upwards of 300, maybe 500,000 uh, French Calvinists, known as Huguenots, fled the country. Um, one of the responses to this in the south of France was a revolt by a group of people who've become known as the, the Kamasar. And in their midst, you had the emergence of uh, prophecy and speaking in tongues. And Antoine Cour's mother was a prophetess, would take him to these various secret meetings where there would be prophetic utterances and sometimes children, 10, 12 years old, prophesying and uh, speaking in tongues. And what it led to was the complete destruction of the churches. Uh, there was chaos, the, the attacks from outside, the, the internal um, exaltation of these prophets and prophetesses at the expense of pastoral ministry and the, the preaching of the word. And Antoine Cor found himself having to rebuild these churches, and he does a fabulous job. And uh, he finds himself under persecution and uh, flees France and ends up in Switzerland, French-speaking Switzerland, in Lausanne, where he establishes a seminary to train men to go back as pastors into this very tumultuous situation. And because the major threat, as he was growing up, was the Roman Catholic Church, its alliance with the French state in the person of Louis XIV, the Sun King, um, he trains the pastors 
in the ways of responding to Roman Catholicism. In other words, he trains them as apologists to the Church of Rome. Um, in some ways, he obviously he's thinking back about his youth, but he's also thinking about the fact that the dominant political power to which Protestants have had to respond ever since the early days of the Reformation with Luther and Calvin was the Roman Catholic Church. And here we are 200 years on virtually, and um, he's training them in this, in this regard. What he doesn't realize, and this is the da one downside, the, the, the downside of his ministry, which is really a, a ministry of restoration, and is really a fabulous ministry of pastoral training. What he doesn't realize is that over the horizon that he cannot see is the Enlightenment. And so the very men that he trains to respond to Rome do not have the resources to respond to the Enlightenment. And so he, he is able to rebuild many of those churches, but within two generations, many of those churches are liberal because they, they had been, their leadership had been trained how to respond to Rome. But then along come people like Voltaire and Diderot and D'Alembert, and uh, um, Rousseau, um, and their, their sneering attacks on Christianity, and their su subtle um, uh, atheism. And those churches, many of them fall prey to the kind of atheistic philosophical systems that become promoted by French Enlightenment figures in the 18th century. And so a the church, and I think that's a very uh, telling example of how the church has to be in touch with her culture and in touch with the as, as far best as she can the trends of her culture. Where where is this culture going? And uh, here in Canada, we need to try to anticipate. Well, you know, what will we face in twenty five, thirty years' time? And what will our pastors need to be able to uh, the intellectual equipment? Uh, to respond to the challenges of that day. One thing I've noticed in 2021, and maybe even in the last five years, has been the sort of the those who are the loudest within the apologetic battle for the culture tend to be, not all of them, but tend to be sarcastic. Their tone of their apologetics is more uh, against the culture. Uh, is that is that what is that new? Or is that something that the churches sort of all always struggle with? Yeah, I think this has always been the case. Uh, the church is, um, the, you know, the, 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 there's not just one uniform approach to culture in the life of the church. So in the, in the early centuries, you have somebody like Tertullian. And Tertullian is somewhat anti-culture, Christ against culture. Um, in other periods of time, it's Christ... Uh, Christ, the shaper of culture. Um, in others, it's there are two cultures. There's Christian culture. There's the secular uh, culture that surrounds us. And so you find that the church has had different ways of responding to the culture. Um, and um, in some cases, uh, I think it, it's not inappropriate uh, to be a Christ against culture kind of um, perspective. Um, it's very obvious that there are certain areas of our culture that we cannot uh, compromise with and we cannot merge with. Um, so 
our culture is increasingly a, to some degree, a culture of death. Uh, the the affirmation of abortion, even by you know political conservatives in the Conservative Party here in Canada, the the Tory Party, it's not an it's not it's not an issue that will even be brought to the floor of the House of Commons. Um, and there is this acceptance of the murder, the mass murder that's going on. And this came, I think, recently in uh, the uh, Queen's Park in the provincial government when one of um, the our premiers, Premier Ford's um, uh, key cabinet members, uh, spoke uh, in favor of um, uh, pro-life. And um, he was uh, heavily criticized, obviously by by the uh, political opposition. But even even in his own party, uh, there were those who said that to talk about the abortions that have been going on in our country as a Holocaust it does a misjustice to the Jews. Um, so I mean, there are areas where. You know, our culture has embraced this kind of culture of death, and we as Christians cannot cannot um, um, affirm that. And so there are areas where we will be Christ against culture. But uh, culture has a way of subtly shaping even those who don't think they're shaped by it. And one of my favorite examples, it's, it's a mundane example, but it's a very, in my mind, very telling. So when I first started teaching at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, um, I had some of the, my doctoral classes in a room called the Mullins Room. It's on the third floor. It's so-called the Mullins Room because there is a beautiful picture, a very graceful picture painting of uh, E.Y. Mullins' wife, Mrs. Mullins. And I don't, I don't even remember her first name, and I should, but anyway, uh, that is in the room. So it's known as the, the Mullins Room. And... Um, the first time I went into the room, what struck me was how bizarrely out of date was the carpeting and the and the the seating. The carpet was this kind of muddy orange. It had once been a bright orange because it had been put in the put somebody had put it in there in the sixties when orange was really in. And here it was now uh, nearly fifty years later, well forty five years later. It was in the first part of this millennium, around two thousand five, two thousand six. And it was so out. I mean, orange went out somewhere in the early 70s. And to make it even worse, they, they had these chairs, these bucket chairs that were also orange, not the same orange as the carpet. And it just was uh, absolutely horrible. And that was my first reaction. But upon reflection, I thought, why did I feel that? Why did I feel that this was so out of date and so 1960-ish? Um, sadly, uh, in one sense, the orange is back in style now, but they they redid the carpeting and the, the bucket chairs, so the color scheme is no longer uh, in not it's not in style now, uh, as it were. But uh, why did I feel that? And I, I like who was it who said orange is out? Along the same lines, I'm very interested in color. Along the same lines, uh, during the 1960s, my wife used to sometimes wear brown dresses and brown suits, uh, kind of uh, dress suits. And um, then brown went out. And I remember telling me, you know, probably about 20 years ago, 
she could not find brown. You can't buy anything in brown for women. Like, and that, like who, who decides that a color is out? And if you did see the color on somebody, you'd know immediately. It was, it was, it was uh, kind of a hand-me-down from like 30, 40 years ago. Not simply the cut uh, of, the, of the, the fashion, but the color. Now that that's a very you think oh, like where's he going with this like I, you know oh, okay so big deal well what I, what that illustrates is that somehow we imbibe um, almost imperceptibly perspectives when you live in a culture that culture fits you like a glove um, you just have to go to another culture where you don't speak the language. Um, or you have to go to Britain, for example, that I often do. And I was raised in Britain, but I, I'm, I, I never feel completely, totally at home there the way I do in Canada. Uh, when I go to the States, again, I'm not completely at home. There is a little elements. And it's not simply seeing the American flag and not the Canadian maple leaf or the Union Jack and not the maple leaf. It's other things that are very, very small and almost imperceptible. And when you live in a culture, that culture shapes you. And it's, it, it, there's just no way that you can be alert to every facet of culture. So that is shaping you. So even, even, even when you have these Christ against culture perspectives, those who hold them are shaped sometimes imperceptibly by their culture. And I, I think one way I, I perceive this in the current day is the uh, the use of social media. Social media, like Twitter and like Facebook, seems to bring out the worst in some people. And here you have Christians using it and saying things on social media they would never say to another person if that person were in front of them, the way they respond to them. And they're actually being shaped by the medium in the way that they present the message that they're wanting to present. And they're actually being shaped the same way that that medium is shaping others. Uh, it really is a misnomer to call it social media. In, in many ways, it's anything but social. Um, it's not clear to me whether the social media have, 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 um, have either revealed the lack of um, social politeness in Christian circles, or if if it has exacerbated that, and I think it's the latter. If it's produced it because of the nature of the medium, and there there you see, okay, so you've got somebody who is a who is a firm commitment to all of the fundamentals of the Christian faith, and anybody who deviates, he's going to let them have it, and he gets on social media and he starts to say things that he would never say to the person, but in in fact, what's happening? is that the very things that he hates about our culture that he's going to stand against, other elements of that culture are shaping him or her. And um, so apologetics, for a good apologist, I think you have to know the trends of your culture, both the very obvious ones. I mean, to speak against abortion is an obvious issue and what lies behind it. Uh, to some degree, but it's it's those it's what many of us do not perceive that the the apologist, the good apologist, has to see. And then, secondly, the apologist, a good apologist, has to be able to to look down the road and 
well, this in some ways is impossible, but try to determine, like, where is our culture going and how can I help in what I teach today? How can I ground people to be able to respond at that point uh, down the road? And then I think the a good apologist has to be marked by, as Peter says, a gentleness. And um, the Christ against culture mode of apologetics, while necessary sometimes, it breeds uh, angry people, fierce, denunciatory people. And you're not going to win anybody that way. And there has to be a gentleness and a kindness. And Peter brings that out in this passage, or in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 to 26. Uh, the, the, the man of God has to be gentle with those who oppose the truth. Uh, if perhaps uh, through his witness, uh, God might uh, bring them to, to faith and escape the snare of the devil. Feeds Podcast is in partnership with H&E Publishing, a reformed and Canadian publishing house seeking to spread the steadfast love and faithfulness of Christ through the publication of church history, biblical spirituality, Christian living, and theology. Join us next time as we seek to see what God has done in the history of His people.